these people need help. Like these, these are the lawyers that I always said back when I was 18 that I want to be their psychiatrist. Well, I don't want to be their psychiatrist anymore, but I can be their counselor and I can be their guide through this process. Coming to you from the deep and weird and ADHD-fueled recesses of Marshall Lichty's neocortex, this is JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD where we talk about finally getting stuff done. We help you optimize your law practice, your business, your life, and your brain. We hyper-focus on ideas, tips, and tricks for every lawyer with ADHD, whether they know they have it or not. And now, your host, a guy who once held someone's fake eyeball in his palm, Marshall Lichty. Hey, y'all. This is Marshall Lichty, and welcome to JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD. I'm Marshall. I'm a lawyer. And I've got ADHD. Say, I am stoked about this interview today. So it's for a lot of reasons. One of them is because it's with a friend of mine, someone I'm lucky to call a dear friend. Um, but she is also an amazing entrepreneur and human and lawyer, truly a lawyer's lawyer. Uh, my guest today is one of the kindest and cleverest, really one of the boldest lawyers I know. And she carries the distinction of being the very first podcast episode that I ever recorded. Obviously, I'm uh, publishing it a little bit later, but um, she's she's the OG. And if you're just a bit patient, I'm actually going to tell you her name. But first, I want to give you a quick JDHD update. Um, So this week, I recorded my first elimination of bias CLE uh, for Minnesota CLE. It was a two-hour affair in conjunction with Minnesota Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers. And a podcast with Sam Glover on the Lawyers Podcast dropped uh, this week, too. I surpassed 110 subscribers to the email list. I hired a page speed superhero from China uh, on Upwork to help me speed up my desktop and mobile website performance. And I've had amazing conversations with lawyers from all over the world, including a bunch of email exchanges on Friday that like moved my soul. I'm beta testing the idea of a new mastermind group for lawyers with ADHD. I'm thinking about a very minimal financial commitment with two remote group meetings every month and a confidential meeting space on Slack or Discord or Facebook. If, if that gives you any interest or curiosity at all and you'd be willing to take a short survey, email me at marshall at the jdhd.com with the subject mastermind question mark and I'll show you the survey. Uh, there's no commitment at all. I'm just testing the waters to see if there's an appetite for uh, more connection with the legions of JDHDs out there around the world. Finally, I want to give you all my most sincere thank you. I have been overwhelmed with the response to JDHD. I'm an imposter and imposters don't stick around for long if they don't start to feel like they're home. You make me feel at home and I'm thankful for each and every one of you. So now with all that squishy stuff out of the way, it's time to kick off an amazing interview with an amazing person that I'm proud to call my friend. Megan Xavier. Today, I am really excited to have a guest that uh, you are all going to like a lot. This person I originally met uh, mostly on a run. We were running uncomfortably in the city of St. Louis, and I have gone on to appreciate the fact that uh, she is a lot of things beyond that. She is a podcaster with her own podcast called Lawyers Gone Ethical. She is a blogger everywhere. She has blogged at uh, Lawyerist and Attorney at Work and My Shingle and Gen Y Lawyer and Lawyers with Depression and Maximum Lawyer and Clear Law Institute and Above the Law 2020 and everywhere else. She's spoken at Tech Show, which is a pipe dream of mine that uh, I hope to one day emulate. Uh, she's an entrepreneur. She's got her own business. Uh, she actually has a, a product, maybe another business too, called the State Bar Playbook. And she is a innovator, an avid Twitter nerd, a runner, and a whole bunch of other things. And that's why I'm really excited to introduce you today to Megan Xavier, who is uh, not just a friend of mine, but um, a really magnificent person too. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today, Megan, uh, before you introduce yourself, is the fact that you, um, in addition to being really good at location agnosticism, uh, having been born in, in California, now representing clients in California from your home well, that isn't in California. You've also lived elsewhere, New York, New Jersey, California, a couple of other places. And uh, we're going to talk today about your practice, which is representing lawyers in ethics complaints, state bar ethics complaints in the state of California. So what I want to ask you is, how did you know? How did you first know that you were meant to be a state law defense lawyer, Megan Xavier? Okay. 
Marshall, that has to be the nicest introduction. Thank you. Um, so that's a really good question. How did I know? Um, so that's kind of a long story. I'll try and keep it short. Um, when I first set out to go to law school, it wasn't like I know some people like have this big plan and that's always, you know, been what they were going to do. I was 18 years old, graduating from college sooner than I thought. Like already that's early, right? But I thought I was going to have another semester. From Berkeley, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So law school was Berkeley. Oh, law school is um, Berkeley. So college, college is complicated. Let's just say I was at the University of Oregon at the time. That's not where my degree is from, but long story. Um, so I was getting ready to graduate and it was like, oh, whoops. I um, didn't realize that was happening yet. <laughs> like, I, okay. I was so busy having fun taking a ridiculous number of classes that I didn't realize they added up to I was done. And so um, I was like, well, I could go to law school. Like, that would be cool, right? Mm-hmm. So I applied really late to all these law schools and, you know, got in and started down the path of law school. But really what I wanted to do was help lawyers as a psychiatrist. And so it was like, well, I don't have my pre-meds done. I wasn't really on a med school track. I'll go to law school and I'll do my pre-meds and then I'll go to medical school. Did you have lawyers in your life that you knew? Most people who graduate Mm -hmm. from college don't even know lawyers, never mind that they need psychologists desperately. (laughs) My father um, is a lawyer with PTSD as huh? of the end of that. Um, so, um, and severe depression most of my life. It hit home with you from, from the get-go. Yeah. So I knew that he was not alone and I knew that lawyers suffered really high rates of depression and I was really interested in treating them. I really wasn't that interested in being a lawyer <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, I, cause I, I hadn't really thought about practicing law. Really, I was like, how do I help lawyers? And so I went to law school and I loved law school. I mean, people have these you know, horror stories. Where I loved law school. Absolutely. I loved law school. I loved law um, school. I knew I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> My dad gave me a Black's Law Dictionary um, as I started. And I still have that. Um, it now presses flowers really well. Um, <laughs> it's the heaviest book in my house, but it's inscribed in the front. My dad wrote me this really nice note in 1996 um, that my kids recently read. And they know their papa really well. He lives about five minutes from me. So um, it's just kind of funny for them. It's like a mind trip. Um, but he even told me in that note, like, you're going to love law school. You're going to love the intellectual challenge of it. And I did. But I still had this plan for medical school. So I was doing all my med school prerequisites while in law school. So I took my biology and my chemistry and my organic chemistry. The only class I have ever had to repeat is organic chemistry too. <laughs> my brain does not work that way. Um, I Even got the a, best among us are, are uh, you know, have, have weaknesses apparently. Oh yeah. I don't, that spatial need in organic chemistry, I do not have that. Um, and so I got it my first D ever at Hunter College in New York, my organic chemistry two class. And we'll never forget it. Um, and I took physics and all that. And I took the MCAT and I scored quite well for a lawyer on the MCAT. <laughs> totally respectable. I would have gotten into some medical school, not Harvard, but you know, I would have been okay. Um, and then it was like, wow, do I really want to go back to being a zero? Right? Like, do I want to go back to first year of something? Sure. So I had a federal clerkship, which, you know, and I I was at Berkeley um, and you don't say no to federal clerkship. So I did did federal clerkship. And then you don't say no to AMLA 200. You don't. And we're dead broke because we're living in New York on a $40,000 clerkship salary. Well, my now husband is going to re going to college. He'd already been to college and he went to college again and got a bunch of degrees. So he's like, you know, <laughs> struggling as a student and we have no money and we're literally putting groceries on credit cards. And it's like, I could go work at a big firm and we could pay off our debt and we could get ahead. So I did. And then as my MCAT score was about to expire, I said, I'm not taking that again. You know how people say that at the bar exam? Right. Um, and so I basically went through the analysis and decided that I was going to stick with law let go of my med school dream because going down that path would have meant things like putting off a family a lot longer than I really wanted to at that point. Um, I still was, you know, early twenties, but in my head, this was was really important to me. Um, and so I let that go and I, I did big law for about eight years, securities litigator, um, and general commercial litigator. And it had its moments. I will, never say that it was all bad. Um, but it was frustrating at times. And 
I saw people needing help um, in the state bar discipline process. Um, I had people close to me who needed help and I couldn't help because in big law, you know, we were always told basically you can't do work outside of the firm. And I get that from an ethics perspective, um, but it sucked. And I still think that they could have done things like let us bring family cases or friend cases in that are going to take 10 hours of work and let us do that. Right. But they didn't. So who was the first lawyer, not by name, of course, but tell us about the first lawyer that you were able to help. So I ended up leaving big law um, in 2009 and I was referred to someone who was a depression sufferer um, with a bar complaint history um, back to the 80s. So by then it's, you know, yeah, 2009, like I said. Um, So back in the 80s, had a discipline. Um, It wasn't huge. Um, Talking to them, I learned that that was at a point where they had crashed um, psychiatrically. Um, And then they come back and for like 20 some odd years had been fine. And they weren't so well anymore. Mm. And there were a series of complaints and they were directly tied to depression. And I was able to help them through that matter. And basically, I sat there in state bar court and I watched some of the other respondents, which it's not like civil court. Like, I mean, you don't sit there with a calendar and watch 15 people come through. Um, You often see no one. When you go to state bar court, you go to your matter and you leave and you think, is there even another soul in this building? That's got to be terribly isolating. It's really weird. I have to say it's really strange and odd and cold. Um, But I was there one day where there were several people on the calendar, which, like I said, is unusual. But I did watch several and several self-represented respondents go through. And it kind of clicked for me. I was like, these people need help. Like these, These are the lawyers that I always said back when I was 18 that I want to be their psychiatrist. Well, I don't want to be their psychiatrist anymore. But I can be their counselor and I can be their guide through this process. You're listening to JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD with Marshall Lichty. So I launched a practice then that was to support the self-represented respondents, sure. which is still a component of what I do. It's what my digital product is all about. Um, but then it grew over time to the point where you know most of my work is representing people on a full scope basis um, through the process. So you mentioned your product. That's the State Bar Playbook. Correct. Tell, say, say a couple of words about that. Where can people find it and who is it for? It's at statebarplaybook.com. And it is for California lawyers who are going through the discipline system really without representation is who it's intended for. I still think that if you have representation and you have the resources to also have the playbook, it's a great um, guide for understanding the process a bit more than a lot of lawyers are you know, really able to just sit down and explain to you because it has like the entire process from complaint to appeal, all the rules, forms... Um, you know, details of how the whole process works. I love that. What an amazing resource. And I I tend to think about these things on sort of a spectrum. You know, you can, if you have a problem, you can do it yourself. You can do it with help or you can have someone do it for you. And I tend to like the ones that are kind of right in the middle to do it with help. Mm -hmm. There's a component of it that you need to do, but having um, an advocate, somebody who really knows what's going on um, can be super helpful. So that feels, that feels like a really neat part of your practice. Okay. So I I, want to, shift quickly to, well, maybe not quickly, the shift will be quick, but I want to talk about this. You represent clients in the state of California who have state bar complaints. Where are you right now? (laughs) In Georgia. That doesn't make any sense. Are you visiting Georgia? (laughs) No, I live in Georgia. (laughs) Tell me about that. So um, I have lived many places and when I actually started doing this work, I was physically in California um, after being gone a number of times. I was born and raised in California. That's you know by far my home state, no matter how long or how far <laughs> um, you know, I've been gone from it. Um, but born and raised there. And then I went to Oregon and I came back to California. I went to Connecticut for part of law school, back to California. Um, Stint to Australia, if I'm not mistaken. Moved, yeah, eventually there. So I moved to New York and New Jersey, moved back to California, um, started doing this work, moved to Australia. Ran a firm from there. Yes, from California to Australia, I started the practice full bore. Like that's where I set up a website and really called myself, you know, 
a practicing lawyer in this field. Um, in 2009 is when I started doing the work for sure, but it was more like just on referral basis and word of mouth. Sure. When I was in Australia, I was like, I love doing this and there's no reason I have to be there. Um, I was very careful. I couldn't take a case that required me to be there. I was pregnant and then had a newborn and I was a big ass flight away from California. Um, So I, but I really launched it there. Then we left there and moved to Georgia. And, you know, California is just a hotbed of this type of work. Um, I know the system. I know the people. I've never had reason to practice elsewhere despite my physical location. And now I can do a day trip to San Francisco or LA if I need to. I live next to the world's busiest airport. It's really easy to go if I have to. And most of the time, I don't have to. You know, we've kind of forget that when we think that lawyers are supposed to practice in their communities. The truth is that you don't need to meet people in person. And if I was across town from most of my clients, I still wouldn't make them come to my office. We can do everything by phone. And that's gotten easier and easier over the years. I love that. So there you are in Georgia. You've got a husband and a, a couple of rugrats, four, if I'm not mistaken. Four, that's You've got true. Some, uh, some, some animals and some uh, clients and a bunch of other things. And you, you go about the business of representing lawyers who have some challenges in the ethics system in California. So exactly. what I would, I would really love to hear how um, you come to find your clients. And I don't mean how you find and earn clients. What I mean is when you run into your typical client, what does that look and feel like? Where are they? What's happening? How do they They feel? They are panicked and stressed, often angry, um, typically very defensive. Um, Every so often, one is very remorseful and regretful. But those are honestly pretty infrequent in terms of like the first interaction. So I want to stop you right there because I'm fascinated by that response. The first time I got an ethics complaint that I knew was, you know, like it was the first time I was all of those things. But um, even though I know knew that I hadn't violated any rules, I was shameful. And we've talked about how ADD impacts lawyers. And um, one of the things that my audience is going to hear in that is I will be defensive outwardly, maybe, or I will be remorseful outwardly. But one thing that's happening inwardly is I might be feeling a massive amount of shame. Is that a, is that a part of your practice is recognizing that and um, maybe understanding how that might impact the process? Absolutely. So there are definitely some clients that you can hear it in them, um, even in their choice of words, uh, when they, when they're defensive and they're saying, well, I didn't do anything wrong, whatever you can hear it, that there's shame. And usually it'll come out like, well, I can't tell my wife or only call my cell phone. Don't call my office. I don't want anyone to know. You are the only person on the planet that Mm -hmm. probably knows this. I have several clients that I communicate with them through their personal cell phone and some random email address that it's like they've set it up just for this because they are so afraid of someone knowing that it's going on. So is that your advice? <laughs> no, my advice is totally the opposite. My Talk advice and I, I write about it and I've you know podcasted about it and put videos about it to share this burden with especially your family. You know, office staff can often be really good too, especially if you have a good team. Um, I think people need to share the burden. Very frequently, bar complaints, I can't I want to say are baseless because that really undercuts the complaining witness and where they are. Um, but they are not going to be sustained in terms of actual discipline. They signify a serious breakdown in a relationship and they signify that the other side is very, very upset about something you have done or didn't do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have actually committed an ethics violation and and should be disciplined for it. And so since it often doesn't mean like, Hey, you're getting disbarred or you're going to be suspended and your practice is going to be shut down to bear that burden entirely by yourself is so stressful and it's going to impact everything around you. And you have a support system in place. You've got a family, you have a team at work. These are people who can help. And not only the emotional burden, but even the substantive piece of responding to a bar complaint, 
I want to hear from staff. If you have a team working on cases or even just working in your office on the admin side and they don't touch cases because they will have details that you won't know or won't realize are important. And so if you isolate yourself when you're dealing with a bar complaint, you basically screw yourself over emotionally and you don't help yourself in terms of the substance of the complaint. And honestly, you're going to turn into a miserable jerk for the whole time it's pending and the people around you have no idea. Right. And, and, you know, you can't, you can't read the label of the bottle from the inside. And so I think a lot of times there's this, this outward perspective that can be super useful in piecing together the the kind of what happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, tell me about what you know about how depression and anxiety. And, and of course, for, for my curiosity and a lot of those people listening, how things like ADHD might impact the process. I know from, you know, the, the lore and from speaking with you that the most common type of violation that, that gets people in this system in the first place tends to be breakdowns in communication. Um, I know that there are others, but tell me about how anxiety and depression and ADHD can, um, trigger or catalyze or exacerbate that kind of breakdown and, and how, um, maybe a tip or two that you have for people about how to start reducing the risk by making communication just a little bit easier. Our website, thejdhd.com, makes this podcast possible. Sign up for a completely free 10-day email course introducing you to ADHD for Lawyers at thejdhd.com slash course. Well, all of those types of conditions kind of have in common that the sufferer will shut down in some way. So, you know, with depression, it can literally be you don't get out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. And anxiety, it can be that you just can't bring yourself to pick up the phone, open the email. You're so paralyzed. And we've talked at some length about ADHD. You know, you could be that you just can't get something out the door because you just don't think it's perfect enough. So these are all similar things. And certainly from the outside, from the client's perspective, it doesn't really matter which of those types of conditions or something similar it is. What they have is silence from you. They have something happening in their case or they have a question for you and they're getting crickets from you. And that's where, you know, the, the sufferer is like dealing with the compounding effect of not having communicated. And then, you know, okay, now the client's angry. I really can't respond to this email or, oh my gosh, I heard that voicemail. There's no way I'm calling them back now. Right. And then tomorrow I'm going to feel even worse because now it's been another day and another call. And so it spirals to the point where there's a bar complaint or there's firing of the lawyer. There's demands for refunds, which I mean, I, my, most of my experience comes um, through depression. That those demands for refunds can often be just, well, not I already spent that money on my mortgage, or oh crap, if I give that back to you, I can't pay this other really important thing. I mean, I would love to see statistics on um, the housing crisis and foreclosures of lawyers, especially solo lawyers, because I bet they were high. Because it's amazing the solo lawyers um, often are living, you know, the equivalent of paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Marginless lives. That that's a thing that we talk about a lot here is margin and finding ways to build margin and financial margin is definitely one of them. So I can, I can absolutely squint and see what it looks like for a lawyer who is already marginless, Mm -hmm. who may or may not, um, you know, have, have done anything that is, that warrants discipline, but for whom the idea of that process and the potential outcome of losing a license or having a reputation injured or having to give back money could be like kind of a domino to fall that that might have a cascading implication. Yeah. Because if you have no margin, you have no savings, you're literally, oh good, thank God I got a client today because the mortgage is due tomorrow. And you take that fee and you spend it. And that's, you know, whether you're ethically allowed to or not, you know, state to state, things are a little different, but you know, probably not. But let's just say, even if you were allowed to spend it, um, you send that in and then you don't get the work done because your depression kept you in bed yep. for the next three days. And now the client's upset and they want that money back. Well, you can't give it to them. So you could just do the work, which would solve the whole problem. 
But your depression keeps you from accomplishing that or your anxiety or your ADHD, whatever you're suffering through. And it just spirals and it just gets uglier and uglier. And eventually, a lot of the people in this situation don't just end up with a single bar complaint. I was curious about that. They end up with like five. And (laughs) you're dealing with a bunch of letters from the bar oftentimes unable to even open them. If you know what's in there (laughs) or you have a good idea what's in there, then they don't even open them. And then you don't respond. And that ultimately goes to disbarment. I've treated emails that way. I've pretended like it wasn't sitting there. I leave it unread. It's the only one that's unread sitting there. I know what's in there. I owe somebody something or I, Mm -hmm. yep, that is, that is a thing I can, I can feel that in my uh, guts right now, that feeling of not opening a letter or pretending like it doesn't exist. So one of the things that I think is absolutely critical for lawyers, particularly with ADD, is starting to take a look. We've talked before about shame and how, um, you know, you can take a mistake, take something that wasn't perfect and have an interaction with it that feels terrible and awful. And, you know, you're kind of black and white. You're either perfect or you're the worst or, you know, that product was perfect or you're the worst. And what I really like is this idea, um, my ADHD coach, and I talked about this very recently, um, the idea of when something bad happens, stepping back and putting on sort of a scientist hat and looking at, you know, using that not as a a tool with which to bludgeon yourself, but using it as a tool to say, okay, this was a thing that happened. It's, it's done. I mean, of course we have the ethics complaint that we might have to deal with, or, or hopefully it's not that, but it's something, you know, slightly uh, less down the spectrum than that. Um, And putting on that hat and saying, why did it happen? What, what came about to let it happen? Is there anything that I can learn? Is there anything that I can treat differently? And so putting that scientist hat on and trying to learn from mistakes is, first of all, cripplingly difficult for people with ADHD. But to the mm-hmm. extent we can do that, I love talking about that. And so we talk a lot about the positive or, or sort of the superpowers of ADHD. I would love to hear you tell me a story about someone who had an ethics complaint and who rather than having a cascading effect of horribleness went through the process in a way that is sort of an avatar for you. Sort of like, this is the best way you can go through this. Do you, is that a thing or is it all just a big, terrible mess with the first brick falling out and then all of the wall falling down after that? It is not always a big, terrible mess. Um, uh, So much of it depends on the, it's almost like a, an internal strength. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, if you don't have this superpower, forget it. Um, but I see the most success with the lawyers who step back from their experience with the bar complaint and go, okay, I never want to go through that again. Whether they think they did something wrong or not, um, it's easiest when they do acknowledge that they had some failing um, but even the ones who didn't, if they just have to have the resolve that they never, ever want to go through this again. Yeah. And I have like, there's one client that I worked with um, who I just, <laughs> I know I've said, I wish they were all like him. Um, and he knows this um, because he went through the complaint process. Investigation's over. You know, his life goes on. He's able to continue practicing. Um, but then says... How do I make sure this doesn't happen again? And actually does a postmortem, you know, actually sits down and goes, here's where it broke down. Here's what was going on in my personal life at the time, like completely justified, right? Like if you look at that from the outside, you're sitting at a bar hearing this guy's story. You're like, dude, of course you didn't call the client back. You were dealing with, you know, that crap. Sure. Yes, he was, but that crap's going to happen again, right? Life happens. So he put into place. He's like, when I have something like this, I'm going to call this friend of mine who's going to swoop in and he's always going to be my backup person. Like he put in a backup person um, so that if he ever starts to struggle personally, he knows to get this backup person involved early before he needs them to say, Hey, here's here's the cases that I've got going on right now. If I suddenly, you know, can't handle them, I'm going to call you. I need to ask you to take over. So that's you know in place. Got a subscription to ethics counseling so that he has an ethics lawyer on call all the time. Is that a service you offer? That is a service I offer. Excellent. Um, and so, you know, got got those systems in place and really looked at like where was the breakdown? What happened that went wrong? Correct that. And while we're at it, 
What did not go wrong, but could have, let's go ahead and put a bandaid on that too and make sure that we don't have a problem in the future. Sure. And so that awareness is super, super important. And you know, somebody like that, I bet they're never going to see a bar complaint again. They've probably been through the one they will ever have. One question I have about your practice is I can see very easily the tactical, technical litigation, very lawyery part of this that, um, you know, probably harkens back to your days in Amlon 200 and securities litigation and whatever, um, strategizing and, and, and winning. What I don't necessarily hear right now is how you bring out the part of you that is the person who was never going to go to law school and was going to go to med school instead and support and counsel and advise and teach and um, help growth happen in these, you know, this population that might be at risk. Where do you do that? What does that look like for you in your practice? So a whole lot of my phone calls with with clients are much more counseling oriented. Most of our work on response to investigations and documents, that's all emailed. You know, it doesn't require much of a personal touch. And we go through that, we get the narrative written and we get the documents together and we submit them and that's all well and good. But when you get on the phone, it's the, I'm really scared. I don't know how to tell my wife. Oh shit, what if they look further? Okay, I have to tell you something you can never tell anybody. Oh. You know, this is this is what I'm I'm hiding. Oh. Make sure they don't look under this rock. Um so those are, you know, the the interactions where we really get personal and we talk through how to handle situations. I've actually had a client tell me he was suicidal, um which was probably the most trying case that I've had. It was actually a tiny little matter. It was resolved with a letter. I mean, it was the smallest matter kind of on record. I mean, really it was, it was a nothing of a case. And it was his everything. It was his absolute world. And it was like, you know, if they looked closer at his trust account, what they were going to find, he was going through a divorce and what that was going to look like. And I mean, it was like spiraling. I spent hours on the phone talking him off the ledge, trying to gauge, like, do I call someone? Do I, what do I do with this information? Right. <laughs> you know, is he serious? I don't, I've never met him in person. He's- when can I hang up the phone? Yes. I, I mean, it was really, really tough. Um, so there's a lot of that um, for me, but it's the, it's, that's the in, you know, as in person as I get with most people, which is on the phone, um, those one-on-one interactions is when so much of that counseling takes place. I mean, it sounds to me like, I mean, I can hear it in your voice. That's the, that's the passion for you. You literally, the sound in your voice was not dismissive of the tactical and technical stuff, but to me, it sounded like, um, that part is so easy and that part is so, um, you know, almost formulaic. There's just a, you just follow the checklist. You just do the thing and you kind of work through it and that the real work is in something else. That's like the, that's the litigation game. Yeah. Well, and I, and, and I think that actually leads into the next question. One of the things that most excites me about being in your orbit is you are one of the people who has taken seriously the idea of incremental improvement in your firm and in sort of the way that you do business. Absolutely. You know, incremental improvement is the only kind of improvement. I'm afraid of the word innovation because it scares everybody and they think they need to like code a robot to bring their clients to court (laughs) or something. And um, I, I know that your perspective on that is very different. Can you Tell me how the work that you have done to innovate your law firm has allowed you to put the stuff that kind of you talk about in a flat voice to the side and really talk about that other part, the emotional part, the counseling, the preemptive, the stuff that is really a superpower for you. The incremental improvement is coming over the past several years as I've systematized what the... I guess really the substantive work of defending people really comes down to. There was a time when you know, I started from scratch on every case, you know, blank sheet of paper, put my sure. name and address in the corner, like I'm starting from scratch. Sure. Um, and then that's really through the connections that I've made through lawyerist and TBD law, where you and I met on that wonderful run. We did. Um, and and um, getting more involved sort of in the, the legal community of a lot of more innovative, forward-thinking people, um, I've been able to bring a lot of those pieces home with me and start to just 
build a practice on systems. So like, for example, now when I meet a new client, there's a consultation process, which involves automation, you know, emailing uh, an intake form they fill out and it uploads directly into my email and my Dropbox. And I go to create an investigation response and I've already got a template created and I have places to plug things in. It doesn't take very long anymore to do this substantive work. It's still fun. Um, but I'm no longer, you know, putting out fires. Like we've talked a little bit about particularly with ADHD. Sure. Right. Um, I'm not like, Oh no, this is due tomorrow. And I have a mountain of work to do. I'm like, Oh, after that first meeting, I basically had a draft done because of systems. And now I need to put my gloss on it and, and, you know, make it pretty, but we're pretty much done. I now am freed up energetically and time-wise to get on the phone and walk them through this and hold their hand and make sure they understand things. And I'm listening. And so I'm able to not be just rushed and dismissive of them and their emo- where they are emotionally. Let's make ADHD easier. Law is hard enough. So I love that. And I have two questions that stem from it. The first one I want to dispense of as quickly as we can, because this definitely isn't a technology podcast, but um, the idea of systematizing and automating and whatever sounds a awesome. I want to know that. I want to know all of it. And B impossible. It sounds like you have now this system that I can't ever emulate. It's impossible. And that you woke up one day and all of a sudden you went from, you know, blinking screen on a blank page without even your letterhead to being like essentially Watson. And I don't even as a particular, as an ADHD person, I don't, I don't have any idea where to start that process or how to get to the end goal, which is yours. And, um, a, did you wake up yesterday and have an, a fully automated <laughs> law firm that just happened? No. And B, no. <laughs> um, quick, qu- quickly, to the extent you uh-huh. can, talk about what it looks like to build incrementally a law firm that now does that a bit better. Well, it, incrementally is like the perfect word. You do it bit by bit. You go, okay, I hate answering my phone, right? Cold answering, hate it. I like to talk to people when they know I'm about to call them. And they answer knowing it's me because it's at our scheduled time and we're all prepared. Like, this is how I like the phone. I've always hated the phone. Okay. I was never that teenager, like on the phone all day. And so I wasn't answering my phone, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Problem. Right. I created an online scheduler. That was one piece, one pain point here. You don't have to call me anymore. Go to my website. You can book a time with me. So then down the road, I go, well, you know, it'd be really helpful to get more information from the person before I call them back. So then you build an intake form on your online scheduler. Sure. And then you go, oh, it'd be great if they could upload documents. So you add that. And then you go, I want to charge for these consultations. So you add a payment piece. Like it's literally one bit at a time and it's never done. So if you have this vision that like, I need to snap my fingers or hire somebody just one day build me an automated firm, like that's not a thing because you're never done doing it. We're constantly tweaking it and automating more things or sometimes finding, ooh, that automation is not cutting it. Mm-hmm. We need a personal touch on this. We're removing the automation and going back to manual for a specific reason. Um, so it's always evolving. Incrementally is a great word for it. And you just pick up point to start and you can't really go wrong. You automate something. Sounds like it's a bit of a flywheel in the sense that, you know, when you start, you have no margin and you do a thing and maybe it helps create a little bit of margin, which is either then repurposed to provide better service or do the things that you love in your business or to work on your business a bit where you never could before. And then you Mm -hmm. do it a little bit more and a little bit more. And eventually you have enough margin and enough flywheel and enough momentum built in where incremental improvement becomes more um, intentional and the gains are bigger as you go because you have more space and time and energy to reinvest. Um, And that feels like what you're talking about. And that sounds magical. (laughs) And it is. It really is. And it's fun too. It's really fun. But you have to get started. You have to start somewhere and it doesn't have to be the perfect place. You just pick somewhere and you can always change it later. I love the online scheduling concept. Um, I, it, it unlocked some things for me and it couldn't have been easier. You know, I, I'm, it's not yeah. like I'm an affiliate for them, but like acuity scheduling or yeah, um, contactually, you know, the, they're, mm-hmm. they're game changers. They're really easy. They're not very expensive. They're 
very powerful um, and it can really start getting you some margin. And um, that, that I think that is just brilliant um, advice and inspiration. So that, so that the next thing that I wanted to do was, was pivot to um, this idea of you sitting on the phone, being a counselor to people who need a bunch of stuff. You're in your happy place. You're helping, you're, you're changing the world. You're making lives easier and better. Do you charge for that? That sounds like a counselor. Um, How do you get, how, how is that profitable? And recognizing that the end goal is not always profitability. Um, is that just your loss leader? Is that just your client service, customer, customer satisfaction type stuff? And you make your money on the technical stuff, or do you figure out a way where counseling becomes a very big and important part of your business too, from a revenue perspective? Well, there's a good, good questions. First of all, profitability is a completely fine goal. And if we weren't profitable, we couldn't continue to keep our doors open to offer the service to someone else. So right. I have the pursuit of profit is absolutely a piece of my business and something I think about, you know, with lots of data now, thank you to <laughs> various TVD law folks who have. Good. As, me. as it should be. I, I fully believe in that. And yeah. And so that's been important to kind of get around to it. I hate hourly billing. So mm-hmm. there was a time when I was all hourly and those calls were charged hourly like everything else because you're still calling me as part of your representation. It's you know part of what I do. Your choice to use that time on the phone. And so, yes, it was still billed. And I'm literally twice as expensive as your therapist. Right. <laughs> But for but I get you in a different way than they do for this particular piece of what you're dealing with, right? Um, but as time has gone on, I've moved almost entirely to flat fees um, for a lot of reasons, which could fill an hour. Um, but flat fees have also opened up the door to a little freedom with those sorts of calls. Um, you're not paying hourly. You're not looking at the clock. I have literally had clients who also bill hourly say, before I get to the point two, before I get to, you know, I'm like, no, no, please, please don't have a conversation with me where you're staring at the clock like that. Um, but it, so they don't have to do that. But I have enough margin built in with my flat fees that on balance, I'm making plenty of money despite spending an hour listening to how freaked out you are and how much you don't want to tell your wife and how I'm going to convince you that you need to go tell her anyway. Yeah. Right? Like, um, and yeah, there are cases, of course, as I was warned before I moved to flat fees where I take a bath and I am talking to that person way more than guys. But it gets balanced out in the next case where I have a client who's got their head completely on their shoulders and is fine and doesn't need a single hand-holding call. So it works out and I'm not suffering profit-wise as a result of it. Yeah. And I can see the value um, in the, the maybe joy isn't the right word, but it's the fulfillment that um, I can see must come through in those moments. Because, you know, like I said, that's that you can feel that that's where your value comes in. And um, I love that you've figured out a way to have that be a part of a profitable, profitable business model. Yeah, absolutely. And I know like you asked, like, is it part of sort of the, to me, competitive advantage um, is one very business way of looking at it, which I do think that it is. Um, I don't, I don't talk to my colleagues and say, Hey, do you sit on the phone and listen to them? Um, But I do get phone calls from people who have consulted colleagues who go, well, the other guy yelled at me, or I used to have this lawyer who made me feel like, you know, garbage every time I talk to them. And I'm like, okay, that's not our job. Like that's not appropriate. There was a softness Um, and a warmth that was missing from my representation that made it feel crappy. I've actually had someone who fired another lawyer um, and in their next stage of the case was looking for new help, which of course is like super super red flag, right? (laughs) Every time someone's going from one lawyer to the next. Um, But I've had them say to me, well, every time I talk to him, he yelled at me. I'm like, why? why? Why are we yelling at each other? We're supposed to be helping. <laughs> why with all the yelling? So I do think that, you know, listening and counseling, um, although I don't do it for competitive advantage, I think that it does ultimately have that impact, you know, through online reviews and word of mouth. Yeah, I love That's that. That's who I am. I love that. So um, quickly, uh, and, and if you don't know the number behind it, that's fine. Um, talk just a little bit about um, the frequency with which you see people who have, um, I don't want to call it mental illness. There are people who would, um, but people who have struggled with things like anxiety, depression, substance abuse, divorce, um, ADHD, bipolar, 
uh, autism spectrum, uh, a whole, you know, um, cornucopia of labels out there. Um, tell me how frequently you see some of those things diagnosed or not that sneak mm-hmm. into the ethics process, or, or maybe the question is just how prevalent is lawyers and mental illness appearing in your practice? Very prevalent. Um, I wouldn't really want to hazard a percentage guess, but it's it's a whole lot of people that I see facing bar complaints who have some undercurrent that if you dig down, you know, is not necessarily diagnosed, but you can see that they're struggling um, emotionally with something more than just the stress of a busy law practice. And would you say that cohort of folks who have this undercurrent is bigger or smaller than those that come to you and say, I am depressed. I've been diagnosed. I'm struggling. This is a bad moment. That's what happened. Where do we go from here? The ones who are really upfront, like, Hey, I've been diagnosed or I'm being treated for depression is a smaller number for sure. Um, they definitely do sometimes like, I don't, I don't feel that I need to put clients on the spot and be like, well, are you you know seeing someone for depression? Sure. Even though I'm like, oh, every radar going sure. <laughs> like sounds like depression to me. So sometimes they tell me this, and sometimes they don't. I usually will approach it very gently um, in the context of, look, we could get some mitigation credit in dealing with the bar if there's something like this going on. Sure. And they sometimes I feel like they have it happening and know it's happening, and maybe you're diagnosed and treated, but simply don't want to tell me. Yeah. Um, and then other times they'll be like, oh, really? That can help? Oh, because yes, I'm seeing a psychiatrist and I'm on medication and, you know, my world crashed at the same time this happened. Like they, they don't even realize it can help them. Sure. Um, but oftentimes um, they don't just come forward with it. Maybe a nice place to start transitioning into the end um, as as unhappy about doing that as I am. What does a future look like where we are better at uncovering those undercurrents before they break everything? I wish that we could get more of the stigma removed. You know, I think that there's a lot of work done in this area. Um, I think that it has changed a lot, even in the time that I've been practicing in this field. So we're at 10 years. Um, That Hazelden study that came out in 2016 showing the alcohol and substance abuse and mental illness problems within the profession. And um, ADHD. And ADHD, um, which I honestly had not realized until speaking to you. You are not alone. Um, Yeah, I'm sure I'm not. And we need to start talking about that more. Um, That study, I feel helps lawyers see that this whole like, oh, you're not alone. Isn't just kumbaya, you know, let's put our hands together and sing around the campfire. This is like, no, really, you're not alone. And when you go to court um, and you sit there in court watching all the lawyers and clients go through, if you're depressed, chances are really good that five other lawyers who walk through there today are depressed too. Um, That's really, I think, going to be something that, that we see the effect for years as those stigmas start to break down. So my sort of vision of the future, if this can happen, um, is that lawyers start to acknowledge and address problems much, much earlier, that we start to um, talk about the idea that if you dread returning client calls, and you dread opening your email, and you know we talk about that feeling in your stomach oh. as you walk back into the office and you see the little envelope in your you know, bar at the bottom of your screen, you know, there's emails and you just don't want to open them. Like we start to talk then like, Hey, do you know that feeling? Let's talk about yeah. that. Where does that feeling come from? What's it, yeah. it, the impact? Like, let's, let's talk about systems to overcome it. Maybe you don't need medication. Maybe right. you don't need to go to a psychiatrist, but we need to talk about this. Right. Like we don't right now. And I think that lawyer to lawyer is going to be the best network for us to be having those conversations so that in the future, you start to find out you know, early on that if you get that feeling, that means you need to do something instead of, 
there's something wrong with me, you know, oh, I just hate the phone, I just hate my email, whatever, you know, excuse you're making. Like we start to see very, very early on that if you have certain things happening for you, that's an indication you need to talk to somebody about how to fix that and not fix you, but fix the thing. Yeah. I swear I didn't pay her to say that. Um, (laughs) That is JDHD. That is what we are building here. We are building a community of people who can help each other, who can talk about some things that are an undercurrent in our lives. We can build tools around them, whether it means a diagnosis or not, whether it means medication or not, we can build tools and language around the idea that ADHD can be easier and that law is hard enough without it. It's hard to practice law. It's hard to run a successful law business, to build enough margin in, to automate it and systematize it and do the things that you're best at doing that originally drew you to the law in the first place. And what I can say is I'm a, I'm a JDHD and I know you're not Megan, um, but your message of strength and um, sharing and vulnerability is one that um, really resonates. And I can't thank you enough for, for sharing that message with everybody. So um, I want to say thank you from, from like my guts and also tell everybody that Megan Xavier, in addition to being just a, a magnificent person, um, can be found absolutely on the Twitters at Xavier yeah. Law. That's Z-A-V-I-E-H Law. Or on her podcast, Lawyers Gone Ethical, on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, and every other place where you listen to podcasts. Uh, and at her website, XavierLaw.com. Megan, thank you so very much. I, I could not be more thankful. Oh, thank you for having me, Marshall. My pleasure. And that, my friends, is Megan Xavier, and I love her. It's possible, I suppose, for someone to be better than her, but I dare you to find that person. I'm so thankful for her compassion and empathy and brilliance and curiosity and all-around excellence. And I'm thankful that she came on the show. Please show her your support and enrich your life while you're at it by finding her on Twitter. She's at Xavier Law. Z-A-B-I-E-H-L-A-W. She's got a new YouTube channel at Xavier Law, which I'll link to in the show notes. She's got a podcast at Lawyers Gone Ethical and her website, XavierLaw.com, where she represents California lawyers in ethics matters and has a whole bunch of other interesting and useful and powerful content. Thank you, Megan. And thank you to everyone who has listened, subscribed, rated, reviewed, and reached out. If you're curious about a new small group mastermind, experiment that I'm running, uh, shoot me an email. I'll be glad to send you a quick survey. Meanwhile, I'm thankful for each and every one of you and your own unique superpowers. I'll see you next week. Thank you for sharing your attention so generously. The single best thing you can do to support the JDHD podcast and this community is to help spread the word far and wide. Please tell your friends and your firms about it. Subscribe, rate, and review us in your favorite podcatcher. And please join our email list at thejdhd.com slash start. We can't wait until next time. Let's make ADHD easier. Law is hard enough.